Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. This week, riots in Athens and European impatience with the Greek government. Has Greece run out of time? It does have a feel amongst the veterans I talk to here of something different, that the future of the project is now at stake. And rumours that one of China's most powerful and controversial figures is in deep political trouble. Now the former police chief is potentially in the hands of Borshilai's political enemies, and most people here believe that he's probably finished as a political force. You're listening to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. First, Greece. The deadline is approaching for Greece to settle a multi-billion euro bond payment that falls due in March. But the haggling over a new bailout for Greece continues against a backdrop of rioting in Athens and diplomatic rows in Brussels. Peter Spiegel, our Brussels bureau chief, is joining me on the line now. Peter, are we getting any closer to a deal? Well, I thought we would have a deal two weeks ago, so I am, I am no longer in the prediction business when it comes to finalising this deal. The problem is now we are running out of a time. There is a big bond due on March 20th, 14.5 billion euros that has to be paid by someone or else Greece defaults. And this has always been the bedrock policy of the Eurozone. We will not allow Greece to default. There is suddenly voices within Europe, particularly the sort of northern AAA countries, Germany, the Netherlands, and Finland, saying, well, actually, is it such a bad thing if Greece were to default? There's a real fight going on that right now. But what has to happen is either that bond has to be paid and that has to get started very quickly, or there's going to be default. And we need to have an answer to that in the next few days. And how real is this fight that you describe? Because there are those who say it's still way too risky for Europe to let Greece default, however angry they are with them because of the potential unintended consequences, as Angela Merkel has put it. And there are others who say, no, actually, you know, we, we can handle it. Do you think they're bluffing or are they really thinking about this? I've got to say, I've talked to very, very senior officials who say they are wrestling with that question internally. You know, there's a number of people I've talked to who said, I just don't know what to do at this point. And so I don't think they're bluffing. I think there's a genuine debate going on within these three national capitals, particularly in Germany, in the Netherlands, Finland, about what the right way to go is. When you talk to economists, they are very, very nervous that the recent lull over the last basically month or two, ever since the ECB began to pump in very, very cheap money into the European banking system, that this lull has lulled people into a false sense of security, that everything looks fine now. We've battened down the hatches. We've put up our defenses. We can survive a Greek default. But as someone pointed out to me, policymakers make the mistake of thinking the recent past is going to continue in the future. We have the Lehman Brothers example of three years ago where everyone thought we can contain a default. And, and that is a nervousness, particularly in France, uh, where the French government is adamantly opposed to any default. And here in Brussels, where the European Commission is also panicked about it. So it, dividing lines have happened inside the Eurozone between countries, but also within governments. I mean, there are elements in the German government, for instance, that are not too bothered by a default. But we know that Angela Merkel, who will have the final say on this, obviously, is very nervous about it. So we're divided within governments and divided within countries. And meanwhile, all this is taking place against the background of very, very bitter politics, again, between countries and within countries. We saw these uh, particularly severe riots in Athens 
and real ill feeling now between Germany and Greece, in particular, with the Greek president condemning uh, the German finance minister. How nervous are the Europeans about sort of uncontrollable political events now? I mean, to me, this is the bigger problem over the, the medium term. I mean, we may get over this financing hump in March. You know, as the Europeans always do, they wait till the last minute, come up with a deal that is way more expensive than it would have been if they got it done months earlier. But they, they, they clear the hurdle and it moves on. The problem is, as you pointed out, the political infighting has become so vitriolic at this point. I mean, you literally have members of the German government, ministers, including Angela Merkel, being portrayed in Nazi uniforms on the front pages of Greek newspapers. I mean, really, really nasty stuff. That's not going to go away. It's not isolated to Greece anymore. I mean, we started seeing anti-German protests in Italy. We've seen anti-German sentiment in Portugal. What happens to the EU as a cohesive unit if you're having these kinds of populist, angry riots and political parties capitalize on that? Again, we've seen, if you look at the recent polls in Greece, the parties that are benefiting from this are sort of the fringe nationalist and also communist parties, the fringe left and the fringe right, who are now up to 12, 15 percent, while the mainstream parties are sinking from, you know, 40 and 50 to down to 20 and 30. So it is a real danger of both the North and the South splintering there. Because in the North, you're seeing these populist parties who are anti-Greek, anti-Italian, anti-Portuguese, anti-Irish. You've seen these populist parties gain 20, 25, 30 percent of the vote in many of these, these polls as well. They're angry. My voters, you know, taxpayer money is going to these profligate Southerners. They're becoming really nasty. That could have a long-term impact on the way Europe functions here over the next year. Faced with that, as they look at the politics, I, I gather some people in the Northern Europe have, have been talking about an almost semi-permanent suspension of democracy to allow technocratic governments in, in Greece and Italy time to ready the economic ship. I mean, they get very sensitive when you accuse them of suspending democracy for obvious reasons. Let's call a spade a spade. I mean, Mario Monti, the technocratic prime minister of Italy, yes, was voted in by no one, but was supported by the democratically elected parliament. So they make that point. But yes, you're seeing, you know, Wolfgang Schäuble, the German finance minister, praising the Italian model, which is not only Monti, but his entire cabinet of technocrats, versus the Greek model, which is a prime minister who's technocratic, Lucas Papademos, former ECB and central banker and from Athens as a prime minister. But the rest of the cabinet is still these fractious parties. And what Schäuble is suggesting is, hey, isn't it great if we get all technocrats in the government? So, you know, whether a technocratic government is democratic or anti-democratic, I think, is best left debated by political scientists. But clearly, you're getting increasing frustration among Schäuble and other northern European officials about the messiness of southern democracies. And if they are going to hand over tens of billions or more euros to these countries for bailouts, they need more surety, they believe, that it's going to be spent well and that the reforms can be implemented. And that's, that's the real tension right now and the real question about are we going to have governments in these countries that are representative of the voters' desires? You know, that gets it down to pretty fundamental issues. Final question, Peter. I mean, what's the mood like in Brussels? I've always found in recent years when I've sort of suggested that things might not be going terribly well in the euro or elsewhere, I've been pushed back and told, you know, you don't understand, you know, Europe always gets through crises. In fact, crises are useful. Are they still confident or is there more of a kind of mood of near panic? Panic is too strong a word. But, you know, amongst the people who I have talked to who have this, we don't know what to do line is people here in Brussels. As you experience, I've had the same experience. You know, we've gone through crises before, the Iraq war, which divided Europe, voting down the constitutional treaty in, in France and the Netherlands. These are major crises that Europe have overcome and we came back together again. It does have a feel amongst the veterans I talk to here of something different, that the future of the project is now at stake. If the euro breaks apart, 
what does that say about the EU and the future of the EU? And you do, in the last week or so, begin to sense panic um, that we haven't seen, frankly, since last August, when you know Italian and Spanish bond yields just went through the roof and everyone thought that we would have to bail out Italy and bail out Spain. So, you know, frankly, we've hit points in the past year where the panic has set in. We are back at those levels, and I think that has spawned quite a bit of nervousness. Panic is, is too strong a word, but a lot of hand-wringing, not knowing what the way forward is, and not knowing the consequences of the decisions they're making. Thanks very much, Peter. Bo Chi Lai, a rising star in Chinese politics and one of the country's princelings, suffered a severe blow to his chances of becoming a member of China's nine-member Politburo this week. Joining me on the line to explain what happened is Jamil Andalini, the FT's Beijing bureau chief. Jamil, can you tell me first of all exactly who is Bo Chi Lai and what did he represent? Bo Chi Lai is the current Communist Party secretary of Chongqing Municipality, which is one of the most important cities in China. It's out in the West. He is also what's known as a princeling in China, which means he's the son of a revolutionary founding father, one of the people who brought the Communist Party to power. His dad was a general in the uh, People's Liberation Army, the Red Army. And so he grew up with a lot of privilege, but his family was very badly treated in the Cultural Revolution, as most senior Communist Party officials were between 1966 and 1976. He's now a rising star in Chinese politics, and until this week, he was seen to be on track to being elevated to the nine-member standing committee of the Politburo of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, which is basically the ruling nine-member group of men. They're all, they've always been men, and it's the nine men who run China. And yet he was regarded, I gather, as somebody with much more of a distinct political personality and a rather controversial one. I mean, he kind of toyed with Maoist ideas and slogans and so on. Yeah, so in a very colourless bunch, he's a very flamboyant figure. People say that if there was one politician who could get elected in a Western-style democratic election in China, he'd probably be the one because he knows how to run a campaign. Interestingly, he has a master's degree in journalism from the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and he speaks quite good English, and he's very polished, he's very presentable. He used to be the Commerce Minister of China. I used to attend regular press briefings with him and Peter Mandelson, and I can tell you, quite amazing. He was one of the only people in the world who could give Mandelson a run for his money and posturing in front of the media. He's very slick, but he's also not very well liked among the political elite and the intellectual elite in China. He's seen as an opportunist. Some people think of him as a bit of a thug for some of the campaigns that he's that he's launched over the last few years. And as I say, I'd got the impression that he was regarded as, whatever this means these days, a leftist or a nationalist. Was that fair enough? It's hard to say. So he definitely has revived out in Chongqing as part of his bid to get elect, you know, elevated to the nine-member standing committee. He started a campaign, they call it the Singing Red campaign, which was just a Maoist communist nostalgic campaign to bring back old nationalistic communist songs about Mao Zedong. So he was using the nostalgic trappings of Maoism and left-wing ideology. But in the actual policy side, beyond the optics, it was a lot of what you'd probably consider progressive policies about you know, providing better social services, providing social housing, you know, council housing, government-provided housing, but also encouraging a, a lot of investment from Western companies. In the Chinese context, it's very hard to divide someone into a leftist and a rightist these days. He had the trappings of Maoism that he was using, but he was also very pro-market and encouraging investment in his city. Now I noticed Jamil that you're almost using the past tense about him. What's happened to him? 
So this week, I mean, he's still there. He met with the Prime Minister of Canada over the weekend, and he is still in Chongqing. But what happened is one of his lieutenants, his basically his right-hand man in Chongqing, the chief of police that he brought in two weeks ago, the chief of police was demoted from chief of police to being in charge of sanitation, athletics, and education, which is a big drop in China. The security services, the police, uh, wield an enormous amount of power here. So that was a big demotion. Four days later, he turned up at the U.S. consulate, 350 kilometers away, in Chengdu City, asking for asylum. Some rumors say that he was dressed as an old woman to evade capture, and he spent 24 hours in the U.S. consulate. And during that time, he was arguing that his life was in danger, that Borshilai wanted to kill him, and that he wanted asylum in the U.S. And also during that time, Borshilai sent uh, reportedly hundreds of police cars from his jurisdiction into this other jurisdiction in Chengdu, which is a huge breach of Chinese law and also party policy. And he sent them to get this guy. And finally, it was resolved when the guy's name is Wang Lijun, former police chief. It was finally resolved when he negotiated for people from Beijing to take him away from the consulate and take him to Beijing rather than let him be sent back to Borshilai and face the wrath of Borshilai. So this is an incredible situation. Coming just before Xi Jinping, the um, future Chinese president, was leaving for the U.S., to have a very senior Communist Party official seeking asylum in a U.S. consulate is just extraordinary. And what people read into it is that uh, now this former police chief is potentially in the hands of Borshilai's political enemies, and most people here believe that he's probably finished as a political force. Because this, uh, he's just attracted too much controversy and too much embarrassment at a, at a vital time? And because now his lieutenant is in, potentially in the hands of his enemies, who can then use whatever he's telling them to hold against them. And if he makes any kind of move to try and be elevated, they could let it leak out into the public. So there will be a lot of people in the political elite at the moment who are very pleased about all of this, because it looks like the downfall of the very powerful figure. So finally, Jamil, what does that tell us about the, the bigger political picture in China as we come to this vital transition where something like 70% of the top leadership is changed? Basically, it tells us that there's a really nasty fight going on behind the scenes. We only get glimpses of it because of the secretive nature of Chinese politics, because everything's done behind closed doors and everything's agreed by a very small group of powerful political players. What this tells us is that China's in the middle of a really vicious battle that we only get sort of the odd glimpse of. And yeah, it's probably only going to intensify as the year goes on. And we, we won't really know how it'll play out until later in the year. And is it possible to have any idea what the implications for the rest of the world are of this internal battle? Or is it just too obscure for us to draw any conclusions? What you can be pretty certain of is that there won't be any major Chinese reforms or big political initiatives in this run-up because people are too busy backstabbing and maneuvering. And they're too cautious as well. A lot of people will be too cautious to get behind any kind of serious reform effort. So China's been in this state of permanent reform, opening to the world and encouraging investment and you know, a continuous progression of, of openings for decades. But it's, at times like this, we see everything go on hold, really. We should expect lots of infighting and not much movement on new policies in China. Jamil Andalini, thank you very much indeed. And that's it for this week. My thanks to Peter Spiegel in Brussels and Jamil Andalini in Beijing. World Weekly is produced by Amy Tang and Serena Tarling. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.
Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.